I'm Jenny. I'm hosting a monthly potluck in my home, potluck for the resistance. Every attendee is expected to bring one concrete action that everyone at the potluck can perform if they choose to. Uh, after the elections, I was compelled to go on the Planned Parenthood website and found that I could sign up to be a volunteer. I have low blood pressure. I tend to react slowly to surprises. My name is Martha Grover. I am donating uh, some of the proceeds from my Patreon page to Black Lives Matter and Anna Wim Red Barn for Homeless Outreach in East County. Years ago, when I was walking to work at the Central Library in downtown L.A., a car slammed into another car at the intersection. A hubcap popped off and rolled straight at me. I just stood there watching it while everyone else seemed to jump into action, either to help the drivers or to call an ambulance. This week I joined a group called Pack Pack. It's the Portland Artists Coalition for Progressive Acts and Causes. Hi, my name is Jess Kelso, and I'm the owner of a Portland small business. Something positive that we're doing is making and selling gift bags, and we're giving 50% of every sale to a combination of Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, Basic Rights Oregon, and the Oregon Food Bank. After the election, I was numb for days. One thing that helped me was talking to people. It was comforting to share emotions and hear how others were taking it. I feel like I can't really reach a deep sleep as if my... You know when you go camping and you're kind of afraid of like maybe animals being around your tent as if my as if my my mind stays alert like I'm from Europe and I'm a third generation after the second world war and somewhere I feel like like in my generation we're finally healing the trauma that happened in Europe in the second world war my grandparents were in it and my parents were in that weird 50s and 60s, and and I'm a, a, a child of that generation that is finally free. So the fact that this is happening now makes me aware, I think personally, of like, oh my gosh, this freedom, that is a bubble that is maybe not free anymore, or that's going to change. And that that feels like as if the future is as if the bottom of the future is just taken out of me. It was especially helpful to hear from people who were already taking action. Hey, Sunny, it's Ashley. So um, I am a massage therapist and um, have a, a pretty full practice, but I, um, I wanted to put an offer out to people who I know were really needing it and really, really affected by uh, the big decision that was made for our country, and I wanted to, to provide a nice safe space for healing and care. And my day booked up uh, very quickly with um, my offer of pay what you can. There are those who naturally move when faced with the unknown. They get right to work, trying to put things in order. Hey there, it's Scott Smith. We are calling my senators, especially, um, to tell them not to normalize Trump and especially Steve Bannon and any frightening, frightening um, appointments to his cabinet. And hearing what they're doing, hearing their examples, really helps me when I'm feeling stuck. This is Johnny. I'm going to the ACLU meeting in Portland today. They're going to talk about how to maintain our civil liberties. Welcome, everyone. 
Thanks. The ACLU is dedicated to protect and advance civil rights and civil liberties, the ones established in the U.S. Constitution. And we're often both the first and the last line of defense when it comes to civil rights and liberties. One of our mottos is, because freedom can't protect itself. You're listening to The Staple, an arts and culture podcast, podcast presented by the IPRC. I uh, called a company meeting on Wednesday morning, and it was the cast and the crew and the musicians and the ushers and anyone basically in the building who wanted to attend. I basically led the meeting by saying that... um, you know, anybody who's here right now is here because um, they're feeling a sense of loss or a sense of grief um, because we uh, we thought um, we were headed in one direction um, with the country and we felt very quickly let down, let down. I compared it to, you know, a big tragic accident and that we all have to kind of go through our, our grieving process um, and that basically... We might all go through similar things, but we'll go through them in our own time. You know, some people might be at a a stage of crying and some people might be in a stage of being angered or being scared or being motivated um, and that we should all accept and acknowledge everyone's in their own state um, and not try to push them into wherever we might be. Now is a place that we can talk and kind of share with each other and, and help each other out. And so from then, I just kind of moved to the side and um, let individuals talk. And it was interesting because probably about six or seven people total spoke and it felt like they all actually represented a different stage of grieving. The first person who spoke actually was a motivator. He was like already ready to be active and to, uh, you know, he was already looking at, you know, the, our senators to write to and our governors to write to and who to, you know, where we need to focus our efforts to like make the next election in the next two years, like um, get us you know, back on, on track again. And then another cast member spoke and talked about the fact that he and his family are from Mexico and he is not going anywhere. He's a 25 year old and he, um, this is his country. This is where he belongs and he's not running. And then we had a couple of people speak who were like scared or sad. Um, there's one crew member who spoke who was, uh, who's gay and, uh, and he was fearful. And he said, you know, I've never actually been afraid before because I'm gay and now I'm, I'm, I'm scared and I don't know what to do. And we had another actress speak who is also from Mexico and she has a five-year-old who didn't want to go to school that day because she thought that maybe her parents wouldn't be around when she got back. There was no resolve at the end of the meeting, which is, was also the intent. 
it gave everyone a starting off point, basically, to like figure out how to forge forward. I think that when you don't know where to start, you just start. This can be making a phone call, tweeting a tweet, showing up for an event. Hey, Sonny, this is Jake. Uh, after the election, I made donations to Southern Poverty Law Center, the ACLU, ProPublica, and Planned Parenthood. Anything that might help to oppose Trump and his ideas. They're recurring donations, and hopefully they'll make a difference. And I've also joined a monthly activist group that holds each other accountable and makes goals and decides to do activist group activities together. I think it's important to get together in person and build connections and community right now because this is a long road and we're going to need each other. And it's a group that I think started on Facebook with musicians discussing fundraising that they wanted to do to uh, help progressive causes. Black Lives Matter, Don't Shoot Portland, Standing Rock, Sioux Tribe. My little web company is planning on doing a website, sort of more of an artistic piece that dramatizes a little bit of the divide between left and right. You seem to be getting a lot of information, people are suffering, and it's just, yeah, yeah, good news in a long time. So we're going to have to make some news. And I think it's just, uh, it has to come from the people. You know, as I said, I'm an optimistic person, and I won't let people take that away from me. Being someone who is uh, of African descent, who lived in the South, was raised in the South, and we had our darkness there. We have a lot of talk of people wanting to return to that darkness, but I have faith that it's just not going to happen unless everybody get on the dark web, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be positive. And I'm going to encourage others to be positive. Just to look, reach down deep and find that good spirit that we have. Hey, it's me again. Um, I just wanted to call and let you know that um, about a week and a half has gone by since uh, our company meeting. And I just got a call from the producer saying that um, Mike Pence might be around um, this evening. And so we started talking about um, whether or not he might come back afterwards to, uh, to talk to all of us. Um, and we, we feel like he probably won't. Um, although since I got that call, I've been sitting to myself thinking, what would I say to him if he, he did? Like, what's one thing that I could say that's actually poignant that the other side might listen to, you know, because that's what we, we want to do. We want to talk to them respectfully and, and say, like, you know, something that might actually captivate them. I'm not sure what that is yet, but I'm going to think about it. Anyways, so, uh, yeah, I talked to uh, some other people that I work with, and um, we uh, were starting to think through um, something, and uh, we've got a lot of great, creative, brilliant minds in our group who, uh, who are going to start to write something um, that... Uh, that we might say to him collectively um, that just might represent us all very well. Um, yeah, and that's what's up right now. So we'll see how that goes, uh, and I'll kind of keep you posted if we get the opportunity to do so. God, it's really hard to leave these voice messages. Um, I'm, I feel a little distracted. Maybe it's easier when I actually talk to you. Um, but anyhow, I'm going to start over again. Audience this evening. And Vice President-elect Pence, I see you're walking out, but I hope you will hear.
bunch of phonies and tweeting posts because this message needs to be spread far and wide, okay? Vice President-elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Musical. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us. Our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. All of us. I like organizing people, so I pull together volunteers and make sure they're on the right place. I like assigning speakers. I like giving people roles, finding out whether someone wants to be in security or chanting. And I'm always there present. I think that there's some really inspirational speakers we have in the activist community that are really good at rallying people on site, and I'm, I'm really good with spreadsheets. I am also an organizer with Portland's Resistance. A group of high school students reached out to us and said, hey, we're organizing a march for students. We'd really love to have some of you guys come speak for us, but also just march with us and, and, and sort of advise us on what we can do. And so um, it was completely organized by the students. They reached out to everybody. They found the location. They picked the route. They got the speakers. And they did a stand-up job. It was beautifully organized. Dylan Palmer, um, Finn Holly Blue, and Callie Ward. They're 17. <laughs> it was so cool to see that. This is Catherine Stevens, an organizer and leader in several activist groups, including Portland's Resistance, which, among other things, led the anti-Trump protests which made national news just after the election. What goes into organizing? It's so much more than like creating a Facebook event page. Oh yeah, you have to pick a generally pick a location or a route. You know, if you're going to have a rally or a march, and um, getting um, people's physical safety taken care of by having medics and a security force and a general route or a plan of action, and then taking it the next step to actually get people rallied up, having speakers, having uh, individuals going through and introducing themselves to the crowd, getting some sort of group engagement before you go out and march. And then also just letting people know about their legal rights, giving them basically legal training, how to interact with the police, what happens when you get arrested, reasons that you're supposed to be arrested, but <laughs> all the reasons that you can be arrested. It's nice to educate people what they're getting themselves into and also let them know that you're going to protect them as much as you can during this expression of your rights because there's a lot of people that don't want us out there doing what we do and expressing ourselves the, the way that we do, even though it is a, a right, a human right. I can really imagine like when you say specifically a team of medics, I can imagine you get people that are trained in that. Mm -hmm. But when you say a team of security, they're not, not they're not necessarily trained security officers, but they're mm -mm. good at de-escalating. Yeah. And how do you know that they will fit that role? We always have teach-ins before we have this group come in. So right now we we have a security team of about 15 people that we've been working with for a while, and they understand how to de-escalate. They understand how to guide people's attention away from things that might put them in danger. And they also understand the dynamic of privilege, how a person of color is more likely to get arrested than a white person. If you are a person that's acting in security and you have the privilege of being white or being male or being cisgendered, 
being physically able, you can make the effort to pair yourself with someone that might not have those privileges and create a safety, a shield of privilege for them. Walk with someone that's disabled or march next to a leader that might be a person of color and make sure that you create that sort of buffer between those individuals and police or anti-protesters. Then it's always good to have medics in case the police show up because that's your actual, the only physical danger usually is when the police come by. So we marched with them. We went across the Burnside Bridge. Um, they had about 60 people there and all high school students and myself, uh, Gregory McKelvey, my partner, and um, one of our fellow organizers with Portland's Resistance, Micah Rhodes, we were the only adults <laughs> that were marching with them. It was all high school students and us. We were the only people with Portland's Resistance. The police came out of nowhere and they were being really physically rough with these kids. I mean, I saw someone get their foot run over. I saw police pushing like 16 year olds. It was the roughest and most hands-on I'd ever seen the police at a protest. And I know that they were trying to set an example. They were trying to scare these kids. They started to arrest Greg, um, Gregory. Sometimes he acts as a police contact, so he'll talk to the head of them and be like, yo, we're gonna try and push through here. You, here's your options, like, just letting you know. Mm -hmm. he, he really openly communicates with the police. I saw one of them walking up to him and I thought, well, maybe they're about to have a conversation and then he was flanked by two and I realized, like, something's about to happen. I stopped and I just ran up to him and I wrapped my arms around him and I held on to him. They cuffed him and then they started pulling me away. And when I realized that was happening, I just, I couldn't let him be alone. I couldn't just willingly let go of him. It wasn't just about that moment of him getting arrested, but it was also him getting in a police car by himself and him driving to, I mean, how many stories have we heard of people of color, unarmed people of color dying on the way to prison? It was, it was something that I couldn't let happen. So I just, I couldn't make myself let go. It took like three police officers to pull me off and I think they were pretty pissed about that because then they got they got super rough with me. I, you might have seen the video. I'm just sort of sitting. My hands were cuffed. They, they grabbed my head out of nowhere. He pressed onto this pressure point and just grabbed my head and started pushing it. And um, I screamed because it hurt so much and sort of reacted. And then they like used that reaction as a justification to push me down and, and hit me more. <laughs> um, so they, they picked me up really roughly. I, I, I was choking because my jacket was zipped up all the way and they grabbed the back of my jacket. And I went out of consciousness for a minute and they just kind of like dropped me on the ground and surrounded myself and, and Gregory with a group of police officers and, and bicycles and blocked us from public view. There was two police officers. One was behind me, holding me down, pushing down on my back with his knee and, and an arm, I think. And then there was an, this other same police officer that was just digging his hands into my pressure points on either side of my face here. I was cuffed. I was on my knees, on the ground, face down, arms behind my back with a police officer on my back. And this man continued to grab my head and dig his hands into these painful spots on my head and was just yelling things like, are you having fun yet? You're going to jail. Do you like this? Repeatedly. And I, I just kind of sat there and was staring off into the distance. I couldn't believe it was happening because it was so uncalled for. 
So behind this sort of barricade that they created of bodies and bicyclists and bicycles, they had myself with this awkward, <laughs> awkward interaction where a police officer was just sort of hitting me for no reason. And then they had taken Gregory, the leader of Portland's resistance, and also my boyfriend, and they had cuffed him and they had just turned him to face me and he was just standing back there. So it was just the two of us, him being sort of made to watch while I'm being pinned on the ground and just sort of hit in the face. We're pretty certain that they were trying to get a reaction out of him to get him to act out and fight back against the police. He had that feeling at the time, so he just stood there and calmly was repeating my rights to me. He was saying, you have a right to attorney. He was just giving me the rundown, how to interact with the police, you know, how to ask for a lawyer. You don't have to answer any questions. They're going to take us to holding, just explaining the entire situation to me, and he sort of repeated it as a mantra. What's going to happen next? how to interact with the police. He's saying it calmly and trying to calm me down while this police officer is just grabbing my face and hurting me. The protest was over. Uh, we were in jail. They had the kids marched to the jail and rallied outside the front doors calling for us to be released. And eventually around midnight they gave up and they, they left and they all went home. I mean, these kids stayed out so late and um, Micah was alone with a friend walking home when the police came out of nowhere and arrested him for protesting. Wow. He was he was nowhere. To, it was the protest was over. Nobody was in the streets. He wasn't even carrying a megaphone. They just spotted him and saw him and arrested him and took him away. Insane. It was so unfortunate because because of all this drama, because of all the, the police brutality, all of the beautiful and inspirational work that these kids did just sort of got swept under the rug. There wasn't a lot of recognition for how, how many hours, how many days they put into planning this and how beautifully executed everything was. It was sort of overlooked by this idea that the police decided to so abruptly and brutally arrest the three organizers that were there to support them. The next day we had court coincidentally at the exact same time as our next uh, rally through Portland's resistance. <laughs> wow, imagine that. They no-complainted all of our charges, so essentially they weren't going to move forward on any of the charges, but they were going to issue us violations. So we had court uh, recently on the 19th, actually, December 19th, to deal with those violations. Uh, we showed up and they it was right after the, the footage got released of the police brutality. They dropped all of my charges. They dropped everything. The lady at the window said, it's your lucky day. <laughs> it was not my lucky day two weeks ago. <laughs> it's so sad because they obviously would have gone right on if, if there wasn't. Oh, yeah, there. they totally would have. Gregory and Micah's violations held. They still pushed those charges, so they pled not guilty. And they're waiting on their court date now so they can fight the charges that they were disobeying peace officers and that they were participating in disorderly conduct. Gregory was was there advising a student who was leading a protest, three students that were leading a protest, and Micah was walking home. <laughs> so of course they're going to plead not guilty. So yeah, we'll see how that goes.
My parents traveled around for a little while, went to five different kindergartens, but ended up back in Vernonia when I was five years old and was there till I was um, till I moved out to Portland. Can you just help me see it a little bit? Is it in the mountains, this town? Yeah. <laughs> if you drew a line between here and Seaside, it would be right in the middle, in the middle of the forest. It's like you take a right and you just drive into the trees until you see something, and that's Vernonia. <laughs> oh, I think I, there's always that sign that says, yes, come to Vernonia. this Vern- way to Vernonia. <laughs> that's the spot. I've been meaning to check it out. I went to school with the same class from kindergarten till I graduated. I knew everybody. My graduating class was 55 people. You knew everybody. You knew everybody and their parents. So it was a really tight-knit community. I lived with both of my parents until I was about seven, and then my mom moved out and left and was with my father after that. We lived in an old gas station. The tanks were buried in the front, and there was a storefront in the front of the house. There was one bedroom that my sister and I shared in. My father slept on a couch in the living room. We were really, yeah, we were really poor. My dad was always between jobs. He struggled a lot, but he worked as hard as he could. He made do with what he had to be as best of a parent as possible. But we had so little, and there's not a lot of opportunities out there. It's, it's a really small town. We struggled. But everyone struggled, so it was sort of something that brought everybody together. Everybody needed something. We all tried to support each other as much as we could. That that actually sounds kind of unique, because in so many places, in America especially, being poor can come with shame. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like if you're in a community where everyone's on the same level, you would probably not feel that. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And we just understood everyone was just honest and vulnerable with one another about their situations and wasn't afraid to reach out and ask for help. Mm-hmm. Didn't get personally offended when somebody offered you help. You know, people were proud, but not so proud that they couldn't help one another accept help from other people. Then in 2007, mm-hmm. a flash flood comes through. Yeah. How much damage was done? The entire town had to shut down. Our high school was destroyed. We lost our middle school and our high school and all of our play structures, all of the sports fields, everything. Small businesses, our grocery store, our pet store, a couple of businesses and storefronts downtown got flooded with maybe a foot of water, lost a lot of product, lost, I mean, weeks and weeks of work. My house was on the other side of town There was this bridge, we called it the Green Bridge. It was was Green Bridge. It sort of went over the river and then there was this pretty big dip. So like a small sort of valley right next to the river. When the waters rose up, they overflowed and poured right down to where my house was. So our house got about four feet of water and we lost everything. I mean, it even sort of shifted on its foundation. The entire place was shook. We didn't have a lot of resources All we had was this house, and after that happened, we lost everything. We didn't have anywhere to go. It was the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry. I was 14, my sister just, it was December 3rd, 2007, so she was about to turn 13. Her birthday is the day after Christmas. We spent Christmas at a friend's house. All of our presents had been donated to us from people out of town. People had wrapped gifts for us and and mailed them to a friend. We stayed with friends and family, kind of hopped around, couch surfed for a while. 
It was really tense, and my dad and I always really butt heads. Uh, I was super independent. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to just go off on my own and do things. Every teenager thinks that they can do it better on their own, right? <laughs> but this was a, a circumstance where I was like, wow, you, you don't have anything to offer me. And if anything, my, my presence here is, is providing you more stress. It's harder for you to figure out how to take care of my little sister. And um, that's when I left. I stopped staying with my dad and my sister and I started staying with my own friends, trying to get a job, volunteering to clean up the town after the flood. It, it was weeks, it was, it was months of cleanup after the flood. So many places had to be gutted and thrown back together. So I was just this 14 year old couch surfing at my friend's houses, waking up early in the morning to haul like moldy pet food out of the pet store downtown. And eventually um, the superintendent of the elementary school, my best friend's father, recognize like this 14 year old is just not going to school <laughs> and is spending all her time cleaning up flooded businesses. We have to get this kid in school. So right. they all came together as a family and decided to invite me to live with them. They really empowered me. They empowered me to keep volunteering and stay active in the community and connected with everyone. But they also made sure I stayed in school, which might not have happened. They just said, you know, you can live with us, you just have to get straight A's, and you have to apply for college. That was the first time anyone ever told me that I could go to college. And it was, it was just that moment of being like, we want you to try this. It was sort of the first time that someone sat me down and treated me as an adult and said, all right, we have some goals that we think you can accomplish, and we're going to help you get there. Let's map out a plan. They were really encouraging, and I'd never experienced that before. So straight A's sounds pretty... Good. I did not get straight A's. <laughs> they didn't kick me out, but I did not get straight A's. Okay. I did my best, though. <laughs> but then did you go to college? I ended up going to University of Portland um, almost on a full ride. I got a lot of scholarships. I did really well in school there. I, and I cried when I got my acceptance letter. I went through college, I did really well, I loved the experience, and I came out of it feeling so grateful to the Millers for giving me that opportunity, really. I couldn't think of a way to really repay them. There's not really a bouquet of flowers that says, like, thanks for saving my life. I was trying to think of all the ways that I could thank them. That's how the Millers Scholarship Foundation was born. I just woke up one day and decided I was going to do it and just read everything I could on it and then started a nonprofit. <laughs> There's a large body of students that are houseless and attending school. I don't know if you've ever just sort of walked by the campus, but by the park blocks, there's people sleeping out in tents, right? There's houseless individuals out there. Those people are students. A lot of them are. There's people that are sleeping in the parks by there and that are staying in our shelters that are waking up in the morning and going to class at PSU. It's not something that colleges are required to track or keep numbers officially or even publish that data. So it's not something we're really aware about how many people are living on the streets and are actively every day waking up, finding a shower, getting clothed, getting some kind of food in them, and then going to class and sitting through a lecture for three hours and focusing on that despite the fact that they don't know where they're going to sleep that night. They're hoping that someone doesn't steal their backpack with everything that they own in it. 
some scholarships they pay directly to tuition or to books or whatever. Um, we were super flexible on the scholarship. We write it out immediately to the student as long as they have proof of attendance and they um, meet with a mentor at the school every few months just to check in with their scholastics and make sure they're on track to graduate. Besides that, we write the check directly out to the students so they can use it for tuition or they can use it to buy clothes or a new tent or maybe put down deposit in an apartment. Anything that helps them do better in school, uh, whether it be their living situation or their scholastics itself. A home isn't really a thing that you can describe, right? Sometimes it's a house that you live in. Sometimes it's a, a group of friends that you spend your time with. Sometimes for a houseless individual, it might be a particular corner where a business owner has said, yeah, you can sleep in front of my doorstep every night. I'm okay with that. Um, and they do that for years, and that becomes their home because someone has accepted them and has made space for them. So someone could be sleeping out on the street every night but feel like they're at home. I prefer to use houseless because it's much more specific. It's a house. It's a physical, structural thing that you live in. Some people have a physical, structural thing. They have a house, but they're experiencing abuse or they're about to lose it or they don't feel comfortable or safe there. So it's not really a home. Essentially, it just doesn't assume that a person has to be inside of a building to feel at home. Some people find a home in a tent. Some people find a home in a stoop. I don't want to assume that they don't feel at home or safe or happy where they are. So I use the term houseless. I think it makes less assumptions about an individual's situation, but also articulates where they're living. Whenever the city of Portland sweeps a houseless encampment, people staying under the bridges or on sidewalks, it's really brutal. The security comes through there and they essentially cut down and throw away everything except what a person can carry away on their backpack. So these people are leaving with as much as they can carry and usually their tent and their sleeping bag, their tents cut down and broken, thrown away, their sleeping bags thrown away, their blankets, all of it thrown away. So. It's so inefficient. We're constantly fundraising and, and collecting donations from individuals so that we can provide these people a place to sleep at night to help them survive the winter. And then within two weeks, the city posts them and sends people out there to cut it down and throw it away. It's just this destructive cycle that we can't get them to stop. Maybe you've heard of the intentional houseless community up in North Portland. Yeah. They are fostering this model, this shelter model that isn't warehousing and sheltering, right? 50 beds in one room. It's this idea of creating tiny villages of tiny homes on property and giving that as a living opportunity to houseless individuals. You also have Boots on the Ground and Backpacks of Hope, which are just these groups of awesome volunteers that put together backpacks with food and warm clothes and tents and just go out on the streets and hand them out to people that are living out on the streets and just try to get them everything they can. A bunch of tents, warm coats, gloves, uh, hand warmers, hats. Um, we have four different uh, warehouses and storage spaces in town where we're, we're still collecting donations and just letting people drop stuff off. And from there, we're just sort of picking up and getting them out to the volunteers to distribute. It sounds to me like you really grew up in a community that already provided an example of what activism and organizing is. Like yeah. it, it was probably <laughs> so natural you didn't even think of it. This is how you get things done. 
The best organizers were the officials at school, so the superintendent and the principal, and people's moms. These powerful, beautiful, strong women who were ready to rally up all of their friends and all of their extra resources and get the kids what they needed. I always really looked up to the moms in the area and they weren't my mother. I didn't know a lot about them. I just knew that, man, she's got a job and she's like managing the home and the finances and the kid. And she also just ran a can drive for the past three days and raised $4,000. How does someone have that kind of capacity? And I realized it has less to do with how much time you have or how many resources you have, but how much energy you're willing to let go and put into someone else's cause and put into someone else's needs. If a mom can organize a $4,000 fundraiser over the course of three days, you know, we all have potential to organize some really awesome stuff with whatever time we have. The music in this episode is by Robert Maciel, Kickball, and the composer duo Silaf and Schoenberg. This episode was edited and produced by myself, Sonny Bleckinger. Special thanks to Jacob Aiello for editorial support. For links to the organizations mentioned in this episode, go to kboo.fm program staple and click on episode 14. The staple is presented by the Independent Publishing Resource Center, and supported by KBOO Radio. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Sarah Adams. I'm a local poet, and I've created a poetry chapbook full of erasure poems taken from Donald Trump's book, Think Like a Billionaire. My chapbook is actually called Think Like a Bee. And I've started selling it and donating all profits to ACLU. If you'd like to be a part of this, go to gumroad.com slash thinklikeabee and pick up a copy or two. Thanks.